Well, good evening, everyone. Open with me in your Bibles, if you would, Judges chapter 17 and Judges 18 are our texts tonight. I'm going to begin by reading all of Judges 17. It's 13 verses. Let's read these together as we begin. Hear now this, the word of the living God. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as a priest. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing on this, his word. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for instructing us through chapters like this. I pray that we will see the total depravity of man, but that we will rejoice in Christ who overcomes and saves even those who are totally depraved, who are foolish, and who are otherwise without hope. We thank you for him tonight. And I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen our faith. And I pray that your word would not come back void, but that in in ways that I can't anticipate, that you would work among us, even in my own heart, as I open the scriptures and proclaim it. So work through me, despite my own self, and work among these, your people, for their good in the faith, that we all may better honor you and glorify you as God. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's possible, it's possible 
to read this chapter and think that the people involved in it are just ignorant. If you do not read the rest of the Bible, if you do not read the rest of Judges, this chapter will not make all that much sense. And you may even make the wrong conclusions. So by way of introduction tonight, I want to see Judges 17 and then later 18 through the lens of the whole Bible as much as I can. And specifically, I pray that you and I will see these chapters as an outworking of Romans 1. So let me read some verses from Romans 1 now. If you have your Bible with you, let's begin by flipping to the New Testament. And let's look at Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. So in Romans 1, we have a description of what happens to ungodliness. Beginning in verse 18, it says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. Let me pause there. So we're beginning, and God is going to punish evildoers. And it begins with those who suppress the truth. But then it keeps going. Because what may be known to God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even by his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So people suppress the truth, though they have clarity about who God is. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And it's speaking about all creation at this point. All people do this. They were not thankful, they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like, inc- like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So it's Romans 1. So this is a, a road of sorts. You may have heard of the Romans road where you're going to evangelize someone and you're going to take them through the gospel well, this is a different sort of Romans road, isn't it? This is a dark road. And this is showing us, showing all the world that people are sinful. But notice there's a progression in these few verses I've read. Verse 18, people suppress the truth and righteousness. Verse 21, they don't glorify God as God. They were not thankful. And then they become futile in their thoughts. And then they become darkened. And then they become fools. And then they exchange the glory of God for an image. And then later the passage will continue. But people get to a point where they actually exchange God for an image. So this is a picture of someone who falls increasingly into sin. Perhaps you have known someone who has fallen increasingly into sin, into worse and worse sin. Perhaps you've noticed that their path looks something like this. In some cases, it takes years. In some cases, decades. Those people you knew, they move beyond living sinfully to living as if they're living by laws on a different planet. They live as if men are women, as if women are men. They live as if a man-made object, 
is breathing and living, worthy of worship, people, because of sin, become fools. And once they are fools, they will do such things. They will bow down to idols. So, what we have in Judges 17 and 18, we see fools bowing down to idols. False worship is apparent, and it's folly. So what I want to do tonight is to help you see this isn't simply ignorance. As I reviewed this, it almost appears as if they're just ignorant and as if we could have compassion on them for their ignorance. But again, remember where we're at in Judges. We're near the end of the book, and there has been a progression People have fallen further and further into sin. And now, they are so dark, they do not know the most basic of God's laws. They are utter fools. So let's look at this under this theme tonight, under this, under this, under this theme. So first heading tonight is going to be this. False worship is fashioned, or we could say folly is Fashion. So this is the very beginning, verses 1 to 6. Notice chapter 17, the very first verse. It starts off rather unusually. It, it, it starts off kind of in the middle of a narrative. Verse 1 and 2, it starts off with this man returning stolen silver. And this man, whose name is Micah, is an ordinary man. He's not a prophet, he's not a priest, nor a judge. And it's as if the author of Judges is showing us that the sin has corrupted all of Israel at this point. Micah stole a great deal of silver from his mother, 1,100 shekels. And this happens to be, by the way, the same amount of money that people gave to Delilah in the last chapter. Some would even suggest that this is Delilah. I don't think we have enough evidence for that, but if that came up in your mind... I wanted to mention that. The mother places a curse on the person who stole her silver. And perhaps her son Micah heard about this curse. And he returns and brings the silver back to her. And it may seem honorable that he returns the silver. But it's quite likely that he just feared the curse. He doesn't want to be punished. And his mother responds to her son by blessing him. Another unusual thing. Your son steals a great deal of silver. And then she turns, and there's no mention of sin. There's no anger. There's just a blessing. She says, I have dedicated the silver to the Lord for my son. But this is not mercy. It's not true religion. It has the trappings of Israelite religion, but it's void of true worship. For look at the very next line. She returns the silver to him, quote, to make a carved image and a molded image. What foolishness this is. I wholly dedicate the silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image. She cannot dedicate silver to God and then give it to a silversmith to make a carved image. Does she know she cannot do this? According to Romans 1, she has become darkened. She has become foolish. So as Micah comes and he gives the money back to his mother, she gives it to a silversmith. The silversmith indeed makes a carved image. And this is a blatant disregard for the second commandment. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them for the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. We read that this morning. So think about the the sins already that have been committed. This is the second commandment violation. But before that, he stole. It's the eighth commandment. He dishonored his father and his mother. He broke the first commandment. So this isn't simple ignorance on his part that, that they just don't know the law because they're in a, in, in, in a country that's godless, lawless. This is ignorance perhaps, but it's more than that. It's folly. Verse 5, the man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idol. So he makes more. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Notice that. He makes his son a priest. Now he's going to go further into false worship. You cannot corrupt the priesthood like this. You cannot just make your son a priest. It would be possible, as I said a minute ago, for someone to read this first several verses and feel sorry in a way for his mother, but we have to bring these other parts of the Bible to bear on this. Could you imagine someone interpreting this story? Oh, they made idols because they just didn't know better. The woman called on God. She actually invokes God's name. She dedicated the silver to God. She just didn't know what the law said. Romans 1 says, we know by nature God is not in carved image. Or perhaps someone would say of Micah, see, look, he knew that he needed a priest to appeal to God on his behalf. He just didn't know that it was against God's law to consecrate your own priest. He just didn't know that it was super sinful. But brothers and sisters, people do make these sort of claims. They really do. Not just here, but elsewhere in the Bible. And when we see someone acting foolishly, sometimes we do just say, ah, they're just ignorant. They just don't know any better. But people have a sin problem. When we see foolishness, The remedy is to preach the gospel. Fools are foolish because of their sin. The Puritan John Trapp says this, evil is Hebrew for a fool. Evil is Hebrew for a fool. They're synonyms. When you think of evil, think of fools. When you think of fools, think of evil. And as we've walked through the book of Judges, we've seen the people spiral downward. They begin with smaller forms of disobedience. And one step at a time, the book grows bleak. It's darker Saturn as we move from one chapter to the next. And if we as a church were not going through this book expositorily, verse by verse, I think we would miss out on some of this. No judge or deliverer will rise up throughout the rest of the book. That's over. We've turned a corner after Samson. And the people do not pray for a deliverer, for that matter. God does not grant one. And this is what the end of the line looks like. It looks like idolatry. It looks like foolishness. It looks like complete obliviousness to God's ways. And now the author of Judges inserts commentary into the narrative. This is a line we've seen before. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author now just tells us that these people are acting sinfully. It's not just Micah and his mother, but all of Israel. Everyone is doing as these people are doing. Everyone's doing what's right in their own 
eyes. More to say on that later. Our second heading, verse 7 to 13, false worship's discontent. False worship's discontent. No one is content with false worship. No one. Notice that a Levite just happens to be wandering around. He's from Judah and comes from Bethlehem and makes his way up into this particular region. Why is a Levite just wandering around? That should raise raise questions for us. So the Levite is already sort of off kilter. What's he doing out there? And he's looking for a place to stay, and that's repeated. Levites don't just wander. They have allotted places they are. But this Levite is looking around, perhaps looking for something like this. And Micah sees an opportunity for an upgrade. Right now, his son is his priest, and now he sees a Levite coming along, and he realizes, you know, yeah, I do have a priest, but this one's better. See, false worship is not content with its worship, with its object of worship. He's discontent. And the son's motivation, notice, Micah's motivation, is to have favor with God. Notice verse 13. Once he gets the Levite and offers him money to be his household priest, the Levite agrees. The Levite is happy at this arrangement. And notice his motivation, verse 13. Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. Again, What foolishness. What folly. He really thinks he's doing right, and and this is important to see. Sometimes people will think that they are doing the right thing. Sometimes even in churches, they will think that they are doing the right thing when really they are doing the very opposite of good. They are doing evil. We know the evil of idolatry because the Scriptures pointed out to us. In fact, the penalty for idolatry is listed out, Deuteronomy 13. If someone, even in your family, even your brother, even your son or your daughter, if you catch them doing something idolatrous, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. That's the penalty for idolatry. It's evil, idolatry is. Thomas Watson says this, An image lover is a God-hater. And that's right. If you're making this other image and bowing down to it, you you, you may be saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping this, and you may not literally be saying in your head, I hate God, but your heart is saying that. You hate God when you bow down to an idol. Well, now our third heading is this, false worship's futility, and now we'll turn to chapter 18 of Judges. If you have your Bible, you can... Turn with me as I'll highlight a few verses in chapter 18. Chapter 18 begins again with this line. It's sort of a bookend. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. And now the tribe of Dan is going to send out a group of five men from their territory to spy out a particular region. And then verse 3, while, they, while these five men were going out, they come to the house of Micah, and they recognize the voice of Micah. That doesn't mean that they, they recognize the priest of Micah, the Levite's voice. That doesn't mean that they knew him, but perhaps they recognized his accent, perhaps something about the way he spoke, called their attention to him. And then they ask him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And the Levite said to them, Micah, what what Micah had done for him. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. So now this group of five men from this tribe of Dan realize that they have a priest in front of them. And so what do they do? They inquire of him. They say, please inquire of God, that we may know whether the journey on which we will go will be prosperous. And again, this priest has not been consecrated. This priest is obviously in sin, and as we'll find out later, this group of men from Dan are in sin. But again, notice that they're invoking God's name. They're seeking God's will. And the priest actually says to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. What a lie. Just blatant lie. This priest does not know God, and he's going to be bold enough to tell these men Yes, your journey will be prosperous. This is evil. And the five men depart, and they go and they spy out this city. And then they come back, verse 8, to their brethren, and they ask for the report. And then they give the report in verses in verse 9. Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. So it's almost echoing the spies, Joshua and Caleb and their group when they first went into Canaan. Verse 11, the 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there and they were armed with weapons of war. Verse 13, they come back to the house of Micah. And why are they going back to the house of Micah? They're going to be blessed by the priest. And they come... And do you know, they say to one another, do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, household idols, a carved image and a molded image? And so they turn aside there and they came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and they greeted him. And now just imagine one particular house, perhaps a nice house, but 600 men show up. And the five men come up and they want to be blessed And when they went into Micah's house, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, and they just steal them. And the priest says to them, what are you doing? And they say to him, be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be the priest of one household or the priest of an entire tribe? And this actually makes the Levite's heart glad. Verse 20. So the Levite now sees an opportunity for an upgrade. And he takes them up on it. He goes with the people. They turn and they depart. 
And then Micah and his men go, and now they try to attack the Danites. And now we're seeing war, civil war, in the midst of Israel. And as Micah comes upon them, verse 23, he calls out to the children of Dan, and they turn around and said to Micah, what ails you that you have gathered such a company? And he says to them, you have taken away my gods which I made, and the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? But then Micah backs away because the 600 men greatly outnumber them. And they turn and they go back to their own house. So his gods are stolen. His priest is stolen. What a remarkable statement verse 24 is. Look at that one. The gods I made. So a silversmith. These are man-made gods. And, and, and this, is, this is what it says. You have taken away my gods, which I have made. Do you really think, if it's God, that it could be taken from you? And you've taken away the priest. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says this, that the writer here, If you linger and you look at this closely, the writer here is at pains to stress the stupidity of false religion. We're meant to laugh at this a little bit. For him to say, the gods I've made, you've taken away. No one can take away the true God. But these little idols, these little trinkets, they can just be lost. They can be stolen, taken away. And Micah goes back to his house. This, in fact, is the last time that we see Micah in this narrative. He is overcome. He's done. The man who stole silver has his silver idols stolen from him. His attempt at false worship is futile. It doesn't work. False worship is ineffective, impractical, worthless. And how often it backfires in just a few years. If you do any traveling in particular, to a country like India with lots of idols, you will see the futility. Idols can break. They, get, they literally can get lost. If it's God and it just disappears, well, I don't know where I put it. That's not a God. That's your trinket. All right, last heading. False worships spread. This verses 27 and the following. So the Danites, they take the things that Micah has made and the priest, and they go to Laish, to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there, and they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born to Israel. The children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So the Danites are not acting righteously. Let me point out a few things about this. First of all, they're not acting righteously in at least these ways, probably more. They stole idols. That's one thing. That's unrighteous. They stole a priest. He's an illegitimate priest, but they stole him. Illegitimate. And there's not any indication in this conquest 
that they are attempting to glorify God. They're doing this, it seems, for their own sake. And even more, I believe R.C. Sproul pointed this out, this was not actually the land that was allotted to them. Another thing they've done is that they are refusing to obey one of Israel's terms of warfare. So here's the term of warfare spelled out in Deuteronomy 20. When the Israelites were to go near a city to fight it, the first thing they were supposed to do is to proclaim an offer of peace to it. But they don't do that. Deuteronomy says this. When you go near a city to fight against it, proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. But notice verse 27. The people of Dan went to the city to a people quiet and secure. They were quiet and secure, unassuming. They weren't warriors. They weren't trying to take over more land. And they, the Danites, struck them with the edge of the sword, burned the city with fire. Even worse, it appears that the idolatry that the Danites introduce into this city, it, it lingers for decades and decades. It appears that the idolatry just stayed. Again, if you look at 1 Kings 12, you can see that it appears that the Danite cult religion is still at play. This is a long time later. This cult religion just lingers in the land. And God did not stop this foolishness, this idolatry from being perpetuated. And consider again, as we began this evening, Romans 1. It is written that God gives sinners up. He gives them over to idolatry. He gives them over to their evil desires. And that in and of itself is a punishment. In and of itself. So as they're bowing down to idols, as their idols are stolen they're already punished. They'll be punished again on the last day. Romans 1, verses 28, says this, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, and so on. And this began because they suppressed the truth. And over time, in the book of Judges, it began there. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And some years later, this very people, they're going to ask for a king from God. But when they ask for a king, it will displease God. Because even in the period of the kings, Israel has not learned its lesson. That no man is righteous. Not one in Israel is righteous. No judge perfectly righteous, no prophet, and no king is perfectly righteous. And the point is, God himself must be the king. And we begin to get echoes of that as Judges winds down and the time of the kings is about to begin. There's no king. There's no king. There's no king. Look at how the people are acting. They need a king. And then once we get to the kings, we're going to realize They need more than a king. 
They need forgiveness of sins. They need the law of God. They need someone to come and to live a righteous life because none of them are able to do it. They need someone to bear the penalty that they deserve. And Christ will come. He will be that king. And only he will lead them out of this foolishness, this folly. For before him, everyone is a fool. Sounds like strong language, but I think that's what Romans teaches us, that all of us are on this path. So let's look at some uses of this text tonight. The first use is to look to that eternal king who leads his people out of folly. In these chapters, here as we wind down in Judges, the last five chapters or so, there's no good news really. Just to give you a little bit of a preview, (laughs) there is no good news. So what are the people in this era supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with these last five chapters? And here's my answer. When you're swimming in this bad news, this part of the Bible, you have an option. You can either look forward or you can look backwards. You either look backwards to the promise of Christ or you look forward to Christ in the pages of the New Testament. You've got to turn the page. So if you're in Romans 1 and you're looking at people growing increasingly darkened, you don't just stop on Romans 1. And if you flip to Romans 2, it's, it's also bad news. So here's my encouragement. Go to Romans 3. Go to Romans 4. Go to Romans 5. For example, Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So don't linger in these parts of the Bible. But do make use of them. We need to read them. We need to be provoked by them. We need to be introspective at times to see if there be any grievous way in us. Am I sinning, Lord? Am I being foolish? Do I have a blind spot? So use these sorts of books for that reason. Luther talked often about the great use of the law to point us to our sin. And then from there, we need to jump to Christ. So use the law, but also use the narrative in a similar way. It points to us our sin. Second use is this. Worship God by the standards he has laid out. There are positive laws, specific laws that God gave his people Israel regarding how they should worship him. They can't just make up how they worship God. They can't. You cannot consecrate your own priest. Even today, there are ways in which we need to approach God in Worship, we must worship him in the manner that he has commanded. Namely, what we're doing right now, preaching of the word, baptism, Lord's Supper. We don't need a dance crew up here, color guard, anything like that. How distracting would that be? Besides, the practical reasons to not have a dance crew up here is that it's, it's, not, it's not talked about in the New Testament. The things that are laid out to us are these things that I've just listed. A third use of this narrative, 
Respect the power and influence of women in God's kingdom. Respect the power and influence of women in God's kingdom. I pointed something out similar to this last week. But here, if you look at the beginning of this passage, another woman is yielding her influence. This narrative began with a mother and a son. And notice who got the idolatry started. And by the way, this idolatry lingered perhaps for centuries. And where did it start? It started with a mother. She overlooked the sin of her son. Deuteronomy says you need to take that before other people. And you guys need to punish the idolater. Or the, the, the. She actually takes the silver first and takes it to the silversmith. She crafts the idolatry. So what power, what influence she has behind the scenes, if you will. We've seen women do good in this book of Judges, but we've also seen them wield their influence for evil. In the last narrative, we saw that men, even thousands of men, could not bring down Samson. He fell because of women. It was his interactions with a series of women, and then finally because of Delilah. And then before that, we've seen other women in this book just wielding influence. So I point that out because I think that is one of the great uses of this book as we see these little interplays of women wielding their power. Fourth and last use, be on watch, lest the sin in you be great. Be on watch. Yes, look to Christ to lead you away from folly and into paths of wise living, but do not let your guard down. Though you've been baptized, though you've joined a church, and though you've made your way along a while in the Christian life, the enemy creeps and he longs to take us down, to tempt us. And he may begin in small ways, that you sin just in a, in a little way, and, and maybe he just wants to create one little weakness in you. So be on guard, brothers and sisters. These small sins can begin to avalanche. And I think that's what happens in this story. It's an illustration. One small step in the wrong direction created this avalanche. And the end result is perhaps a century's worth of idolatry among a tribe. So in conclusion, let us look to that ideal king, Jesus Christ. This book echoes, and it will echo again in the latter pages, the latter chapters that, Lord willing, we can get to in the next few weeks. There is a kingless people in the book of Judges, and there's lots of bad news, and when we see what a kingless people looks like, let us cultivate a gratitude for our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, for because of him, we don't have to experience what these people have experienced. Because of him, we know that one day we will reign in a perfect kingdom. Because of him, we don't have to bow down to trinkets. We can bow down to the true God, knowing he is good to us. So let's pray to him. Our Father, thank you for the ways that you are good to us in unexpected ways. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in in the pages of Scripture. And I pray that 
your word will bear fruit in our lives and that we will be all the better for meditating upon your word and doing the hard work of reading the details and narratives like this. May we look to Christ and be thankful and cultivate great gratitude for he has come and he is victorious. We pray in his name. Amen.